have to say I'm a bit nervous. Um, for eight years I've been writing other people's speeches and I've never written my own. But what helps is that I'm speaking to so many people who have experienced what I have. People who know the terror of multiple track changes. Who feel the rage of being told that their speaker's PA has a few thoughts on their script. <laughs> the fear of being asked for more jokes or more sound bites or to just make it sound a bit more Obamary. <laughs> and who are frankly doing what is rather an improbable job. Because who needs speeches these days anyway? When there's so many methods of communicating, what good is there in someone standing here and making their point in a room full of people like this? When attention spans are so short, why even try and commandeer people's ears for any length of time? Look, if it can't fit in a tweet or on the side of a bus, then what's the point? Also, when the risk is often greater than the return, why bother? Why put yourself out there, vulnerable and exposed? when, I don't know, a frog can jump into your throat or a P45 can land in your hand. <laughs> and yes, when vast amounts of a speech are pre-briefed to the media, does that speech even need to be delivered? Rather philosophical question. That's always been a bugbear for me. When I worked at 10 Downing Street, on the night before a speech was due to be given, it would usually be filleted by the press office and vast chunks sent out to the media. Most would appear in the papers the following day, but still the Prime Minister would schlep over to a marginal seat and deliver it anyway. So maybe Sir Humphrey Appleby, the chief civil servant in the BBC sitcom Yes Minister, was right. In one episode, his underling, Bernard, tells him that the Minister's speech that morning might have been a bit boring. Sir Humphrey's reply is robust. He says, of course it was boring. Bored the pants off them. Ghastly to have to sit through it, I should imagine. Minister's speeches aren't written for the audience they're speaking to, Bernard. Delivering a speech is just a formality you have to go through to get the press release into the papers. We can't worry about entertaining people. We're not scriptwriters for a comedian, not a professional one anyway. So that's why I'm asking the question this morning, why do we bother with an outdated, lengthy, risky, potentially boring method of a communication? Do speeches still matter? And I'll start by answering personally, because <clears throat> speeches have mattered a great deal to me. They've mattered since approximately 11am on March 31st, 2010. I was, as Guy said, a local newspaper reporter. I covered crime and I covered politics. Um, this was the time of the expenses scandal in the UK, so the two had some overlap at that point. And it was politics that brought me to a local school to cover a visit by the leader of the opposition, David Cameron. And seeing a politician like that delivering a perfectly crafted, pre-prepared speech without notes in the round to school kids, teachers, MPs, journalists, TV cameras, his every utterance breathing new life into the oldest political party in the world, that sold to me one of the oldest forms of communication, the speech. Of course, speeches matter to David Cameron as well. Five years before that day, he was a 30-something newish MP and very much the wild card in the race for the leadership of the UK Conservative Party. The front runners included Liam Fox, David Davis. Don't know what happened to them. <laughs> At the party conference in Blackpool, it was David Cameron's turn to show people what sort of a leader he could be with his keynote speech. Now, he didn't have the experience, he didn't have the media backing, he didn't have the hard luck story, 
but he did have the rule of three, repetition, rhetorical questions, alliteration, metonymy, uh, with which to deliver his fresh message. He also had the guts to get up there and deliver his make or break speech from memory. That's what wowed the crowd, impressed the press, tipped the odds his way and made him leader of the party. So how did I get involved in any of this? Well, I got myself a job working for my local MP and I did that so that I could write his speeches. Eventually, a job came up for a speechwriter at the Conservative headquarters. Now, I never would have thought I would be in with a shot. Surely speechwriters would be privately schooled, Oxbridge educated, male, old, i.e. not me. <laughs> but then I read a piece in the News of the World on women in politics, and one profile caught my attention. It was about someone who was non-Oxbridge, non-male, non-old, and who was, in fact, David Cameron's speechwriter. Her name is Claire Foges. And I thought, if she's doing that, maybe I could do something similar. Her story turned a pipe dream into a possibility. So I sent off my CV to Conservative HQ, and I got the job. And I was straight off to the annual Conservative Party Conference in Manchester. Uh, for those of you who don't know, Party Conference is basically Glastonbury Festival for geeks. Instead of music, you have speeches, and the headliner is the Prime Minister. It's the biggest political speech of the year in the UK, the PM speech. It's our State of the Union address. But my job as in-house speechwriter for the party was to help other people write their speeches. So ministers, MPs, peers, candidates, volunteers. I remember <clears throat> drafting and redrafting their scripts, running around the conference hotel with armfuls of A4, uh, giving out the latest drafts, thinking that I was, quite frankly, very important. I bumped into one of the older party members whose speech I'd written. This is Jess, he said, introducing me to his friend. She's in charge of the speeches. His friend looked at me, laden with all this paper. What a fantastic job, he said. You carry the speeches. <laughs> um, years later, a job came up for a speechwriter at 10 Downing Street. And I thought, as a competent speech carrier, I might as well apply. <laughs> uh, I went through four interviews, and the final one was with the Prime Minister then, David Cameron. Um, I remember him saying to me then, in a speech, even though you make lots of points, you're only ever really making one point, and I've always tried to apply that in most things I've done. I ended up in an office on the ground floor of number 10, right by that famous black door. There was Claire Foges, the chief speechwriter, Tim Cadell, the civil service speechwriter, and usually Larry the Cat, the chief mouser who did absolutely nothing. Uh, the proximity of our office to the PM's office said a lot about how much speeches mattered to him. We were pretty close. Um, and over the following three years there, I learned how much speeches matter to our politics. I actually learned a lot about um, how important speeches are from those that were never delivered. And we've all been there when a speech is scheduled and then it's pulled for whatever reason. But sometimes this happens because of the speech writing or article writing process itself. It happened to me both when I worked for David Cameron and when I worked for Theresa May. Uh, apparently, Lyndon B. Johnson changed his mind about the Vietnam War while writing a speech on it. And it's easy to see how, because the process of speech writing forces you to bring logic to an argument, to stress test your argument, if you can't make a coherent narrative out of something, then frankly, it's not good enough to be inflicted on the public. 
uh, which if you think about it is a really good thing. It's like a screening process, although not so great for the speechwriter who spent um, a whole week working on it. Anyway, I saw how much speeches mattered in shifting the dial during campaigns. In 2014, the government held a referendum on Scotland's continued membership of the United Kingdom. In the final few days, the Prime Minister went off to Scotland to make his final case, just as a new poll came in, putting independence in the lead. It was a case of ditch the script, we need a change of tack and tone. Um, these aren't all going to be stories about my speeches that were binned, by the way. Um, out went the thoughtful, patriotic tribute to the Union, and in came the direct, demotic, unscripted appeal to the people. The Prime Minister said, this isn't like a general election. It's not a case of being fed up with the effing Tories and giving them a kick. It wasn't for the next five years, it was for the next century. And basically it was better than anything us in the speech team could have scripted. On polling day, we sat there in the Prime Minister's office and we prepared a winning speech and a losing speech. And in the evening, 10 Downing Street was turned into a hostel, camp beds put on people's office floors. I was particularly nervous that evening, not just because I'm a passionate unionist, but because I knew there were mice in my office and I didn't fancy sharing a floor with them. I told you Larry was lazy, not doing his job. But as the votes were counted, it was a clear result. Maybe the Prime Minister's change in tone swung things, maybe it didn't. Still, it was a huge relief to see him standing on the steps of Downing Street the next morning proclaiming, the people of Scotland have spoken. They've kept our country of four nations together and extra satisfying for me because I'd done the winning speech and finally my script was used and I avoided the mice. Probably the most speeches I've written in a six week period was during the general election campaign. Now during this time, the Prime Minister was either on his tour bus or on the stump. I was in a basement in campaign headquarters writing his scripts and newspaper op-eds and other bits and bobs. Now, of course, message discipline was very important in that election. Everything had to be brought back to the rather unpoetic long-term economic plan that the Conservatives were delivering. But really there was nothing general about this general election. It was very specific, very targeted, very local. I mean, I now know a lot about broadband in Berwickshire and road widening schemes in Wiltshire. Things got so local that, rather like John Major with his soapbox in 1992, the opposition leader Ed Miliband went around Britain with a lectern. He literally popped up everywhere with this lectern, in town squares, in school playing fields, even in someone's back garden with their washing line in the background. Um, luckily, it didn't work for him. It was a shock victory for the Conservative Party, the first outright majority since John Major and his soapbox. And one reason experts frequently give is the strength of their message, message discipline. Another is the very targeted strategy, focusing our resources on the 80 most important seats. And yes, these things were delivered through leafleting, canvassing, advertising, the air war as it's known. But they were also delivered via all those prime ministerial speeches, visits, rallies, hustings, interviews, op-eds. In other words, people did listen, the speeches mattered. The speeches matter abroad as well. I'll never forget one epic prime ministerial trip I went on to Southeast Asia in 2015. As Guy said, five cities, four countries, just three nights on the ground and 13 speeches. Um, diplomacy on these trips is done toast by toast, the warm words served with warm wine. And it sounds pretty straightforward, 
but there are cultural differences. There are things that can get lost or worse, gained in translation. And therefore, the risks involved in such speeches are pretty high, especially when you've got a press pack in tow who are pretty sick of the bromides. But this time, the offence, or faux offence, was caused back at home. And it was done so with one word. We'd whizzed through Jakarta, Singapore, Hanoi, and we were about to go to Kuala Lumpur. But the Prime Minister was here in the blazing sunshine, in the dripping humidity, on the rooftop of the Stock Exchange in Ho Chi Minh City, being interviewed about the story of the day, which was the deepening migrant crisis. Or as he put it, the swarm of people coming across the Mediterranean seeking a better life. It didn't matter that he was sympathising with their desperate journey, condemning the criminal gangs of traffickers that were driving them to it, or leading the European response. That collective noun, swarm, even though it's a commonly used metaphor for a group and technically no more associated with animals than a horde or a pack or a flock, it was taken as proof by his critics that he was dehumanising migrants, a reminder of the perils of connotations, but more than that, a lesson that if we're going to use emotive, vivid language, then we should save it for the points that we really want to make. Now, I've talked a bit about the Prime Minister's conference speech, and when the time came for me to write it, I decamped to a small office in number 10. I don't know about any of you, but I can't write with any noise around me. If someone's talking or eating or breathing or existing near me, I will want to kill them. John Favreau, um, Obama's former speechwriter, talked about how hard the State of the Union address was to write because it was so long and it had to be about everything. It's the same with the conference speech. It has to cover everything and have a rhythm, warp and the weft. David Cameron used to say, a long speech with a few jokes at the start is still a long speech. You need light and shade woven throughout. You also need a thread, a theme, a refrain. I sat there one Saturday in number 10, scribbling ideas for this. No one was around, it was just me and Larry. He was obviously doing nothing, I was working hard. I sent a note to the PM suggesting that we should go with something patriotic, a simple play on our nation's name, Building a Greater Britain. Okay, it wasn't going to set the world alight, but at least it wasn't like a National Front slogan. Okay, it turns out it actually was a National Front slogan. <laughs> um, or rather, the name of a 1945 book by Oswald Mosley. But I actually knew this, and I rationalised it. I made people aware of it, and the PM. Because you can't own every phrase or worry about every remote connotation. There are only so many words in the world. Just as we've wrestled back our union flag from fascists, we can take our language back from them too. And anyway, the speech went down well in the conference hall. Uh, well done on the speech, one colleague said to me afterwards. I know how hard these things are to put together. Put together. <laughs> yes, I just assembled it. I cut and pasted it. I arranged it like those poetry fridge magnets. <laughs> Obviously, speeches matter, but not everyone gets that speechwriters matter too. Let me say this, if you're a speechwriter, you're an advisor. Every word you give your speaker is a piece of advice. Every word is a risk, it's loaded with those connotations, and those connotations will find their way back to you. So we shouldn't let anyone belittle what we do. Indeed, one thing I noticed that was so powerful about that speech, and so many others when I was in number 10, was how they set the agenda. So, as a Prime Minister, you can send a memo to ministers, you can launch a policy, you can even pass a law. 
but there's nothing quite like the person at the top saying the words that people will take as read. That's why these things have been referred to as speech acts. They blur the lines between actions and words. It's why we worry so much when Donald Trump tweets. Not only do we take it as evidence of his poor judgment, it's that his words are taken as deeds, his Twitter spasms as decrees. Speeches matter, perhaps more than we even realise. And actually, if I think about the changes that I've observed in a decade reporting on and working in politics, the rise of populism, the spread of extremism, <coughs> self-doubt of the West, all these trends are being fueled by the words we use, the things we communicate, and, in large part, the speeches that are being made on them. Take the referendum on European Union membership. At this very event two years ago, Tony Blair's former speechwriter, Phil Collins, talked about the impending vote. Speeches would matter, he argued, because words were all we had. No one could say empirically whether the UK would be better off in or out of the European Union. And in the end, people voted for what words created, the idea of leaving rather than the existing reality of remaining. Take Russia right now and the near certainty that the state's done some pretty horrific things, some very recently. Near certainty, they thrive on that element of doubt because overwhelming evidence and, you know, the fact that they have form can be obscured by misinformation, propaganda, fake news, plausible deniability. It's like they're jamming the airwaves with words. They're scrambling the truth in a post-truth age. And also take the extremism that our continent has suffered so deeply from. It's not because of personal hardship or legitimate grievance that so many young Europeans are turning to the evil of ISIS. It's because of a narrative that they're being fed by real-life hate preachers and online demagogues. Put another way, right now in our world, words are speaking louder than actions, which is a slightly depressing place for me to end, but it's also hopeful because just as words contain the poison, they can also offer the antidote. They can make the case for a safer, more peaceful, more prosperous, more honest world. And in doing so, they will demonstrate once and for all that speeches and speechwriters like us really do matter. Thank you.